punishment that you're going to fight. You have to recognize that there is actually an opponent in order to enter into any battle. And that's kind of the idea of what I want to cover today. The, this, the topic of spiritual warfare, what I want to cover today is awareness. Are we aware that we are in a spiritual battle? Okay? And once we understand the awareness of the spiritual battle that we're in, next week we're going to talk about how to engage in that spiritual battle. So there will be a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of this message, and that's intentional. So we're going to get up right to the point of engagement, and then we're going to say, see you next week. Okay? So, 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 so bear with me on that point. I, I will close with a couple of, of verses that should hopefully not leave us in disarray. So the title of this message is, What Are We Really Up Against? What are we really up against? And, and there's a couple of things that I want to explore. Uh, one is I want to explore the fact of that we do have an enemy. There is opposition. And I want to examine what that opposition looks like. And the second is, is really a question. And uh, the question is, how do we identify the enemy? It's a very practical question. And I, and I want to try to get at some maybe practical answers on how to do that. So, first point, we do have an enemy. We do have opposition. Now, Paul assumes, if we look at our our verse today, in in particular in, in verse 12, he says, for our struggle, I'll stop there, um, Paul assumes that we have struggles in life. How many, how many of you, by a show of hand, have ever struggled in life? Okay. Um, how many, for how many of you who have struggled, how many of that has, has it been in the past year even? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Everyone agrees, for the most part, that there are struggles in life. Life sometimes can be characterized as a whole, as a struggle. Paul assumes that he says, when you struggle, for our struggle, he's not arguing that there is a struggle. He's saying, for our struggle, we have struggle. And I don't think the problem is recognizing that there's struggles in life. I think the, the, what we struggle with is ignorance about what the struggle is with. What is the struggle really with? Or what is it really about? And if you're like me, when you're struggling, you look for ways and methods to remove that struggle. Most people don't choose struggle. We like peace. We like harmony. We like pleasure. We like comfort. And when something comes into our lives that interrupts that we try to fix it we want to deal with it we want to remove it so that we can continue with our peace and our pleasure and our comfort and our harmony for example let's say uh, that i get into debt and and now i've got debt repayments that are interfering with my peace and my comfort what do i do 
I might look for ways to make more money. I might purchase budgeting software. I might even um, look to consolidate my debt at a lower interest rate. I might even borrow more money to start paying off the payments of the previous money I borrowed. Now, some of these strategies are better than others, but they're all overlooking some fundamental problem. You see, what I've done in this example is I've automatically assumed that I've got a natural problem and that it can be solved with natural means. What I haven't done is ask the question, why did I get into debt in the first place? If the reason was because I spend and I spend and I spend because no matter how much material possessions I acquire, acquire, it doesn't satisfy me, buying budgeting software is not going to address that problem. I've got a, a much deeper problem that needs deeper remedies. God has said through his word that our struggles are often spiritual. They're often spiritual. What Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit in verse 12, is that our struggles are not with flesh and blood. Which means that our struggles are not merely natural. They're not merely natural. They, have, they might have to do with natural things, but they're not only natural. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. They're not, hum- they're not merely human in origin. What are they? He says they're not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Now, um, this verse, there is some debate in particular on what the rulers and authorities are on or are okay and in recent years and by recent i mean probably in the last 70 years or so some commentators have said that these rulers and authorities are referring to uh, earthly institutions states governments systems okay and it's interesting traditionally that these have always been taken to be spiritual rulers and authorities. And I can't get into it super deep, but I'll tell you my take on it. Is that um, the weight of what Paul says just prior to that, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, characterizes what those rulers and authorities are. And so I take the traditional interpretation that these rulers and authorities are rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. The New Living Translation actually says rulers and authorities of the unseen world. So they actually make an explicit translation, an interpretation really, of that. And not that systems and institutions and states can't be evil. They can because they're made up of people who, who are sinful. But, but what Paul is trying to, to get past, he's saying... There's something beyond just mere flesh and blood. There's, there's a spiritual reality that's unseen, that's behind the scenes, that has real effects on the world, that has real effects on us, 
And that comes in the form of, a, it's like a spiritual war that we're in. There's a real battle with unseen spiritual forces. That's the point that Paul is making. And even if you take the rulers and authorities to be state institutions, you can't negate the fact that he does have in mind, Paul has in mind, a spiritual reality that's behind that. So, if we understand that this, there's this evil spiritual reality behind it, uh, how do we define what that is? How do we define what that is? Well, in verse 11, or verse mm, 10 and 11, he says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So he names this evil spiritual force. It's the devil. He's saying, put on the armor so that you can stand against the devil and his schemes because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against all these things. Evil spirits, rulers and authorities. That is an explanation of the devil or Satan's reign. So that's the enemy that we're fighting against. Now, who is the devil? Just a quick, just from this passage, what do we know about the devil. First off, we know that he schemes. He schemes. He designs. And the picture in my mind came uh, to me. I, I don't know if you've played chess. I used to play chess a lot. I played chess in high school. I didn't play chess for the team because I like basketball more. But when I wasn't playing basketball, I was playing chess. And for some of you, you hate chess because it's like a long game. It's a strategic game. You can sit there in front of a chess board and you're waiting for the opponent to like move and he might take five minutes he might take 20 minutes in some games there's really not even time limits sometimes or the time limits are really large and and what the opponent is doing is they're scheming right they're they're looking at every single move you made and they're and and they're trying to anticipate and think about what's the best move that i can make to destroy you that's the point and that's the picture that we get of the devil, that he is scheming against us. He is planning, he is thinking, he is watching everyone's move, and he is anticipating to try to make the best move that he can make to destroy us. Devil is a schemer. He's also powerful. We see that uh, there's rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31. We also see that the devil is evil. He says uh, these are evil spiritual forces. Uh, Satan is against God and he is against us. And, and fourthly, we see that Satan is spirit. He's not physical. And, and it's important to know that because he can do things that appear supernatural. He can act and influence in ways that cannot be seen because he is a spirit. So is Satan or the devil our enemy? According to Paul, he is. But also according to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says this, Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. It's kind of a scary picture if you think about it. Like, have you ever thought 
Has the thought ever occurred to you that you're being hunted? That's the picture. You might understand this if you've ever been stalked before, like my wife has. She was stalked several years ago by another person for several months. That word stalking, it's, it's, it's a predatory word. Right? A lion, you get this picture of the lion roaring. Like the lion, when it hunts for food, it doesn't go, I'm coming to eat you. That's not what lions do. Lions stalk. They, they try not to be seen. They hide. They crouch. They inch. And you don't see them until it's too late. You don't see them until it's too late. Peter's saying we have a devil, we have an adversary who is stalking us, who's hunting us, and he desires to devour us. The scriptures clearly teach us that we have a very real spirit enemy called Satan, but is he the only enemy? Is every struggle in life a direct result of Satan's handiwork? good question, and I want to go to answer that to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Now, uh, in this passage, uh, you see a few things. You do see the devil. So the devil is the spirit now working in the disobedient. Okay? But you also see two other things that are working against us. We have the world in verse 2, in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. And then the other thing we have is our flesh. Verse 3, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we're by nature children under wrath. So we don't need the devil's help to sin. Our, Our own flesh has inclinations and thoughts which make us, by nature, children of wrath. But they all work together. So Satan can use our flesh, and he can use the world to try to get us away from God. That's his goal, is to take us away from God, to to rob us of our peace, to rob us of our comfort. And so I want to caution us not to try to find the devil underneath every single rock. It's just, it's unhelpful. It's not necessary. Um, However, I do think that by and large, the, the church in our country has probably erred too far on the side of ignoring the satanic and ignoring the demonic. All our, we call all of our major sin struggles addictions, and we have medication or programs to solve them. 
And I'm not saying that, there, that there's no place for medications and programs. I'm not saying that at all. So please don't hear that. But to automatically assume that every problem we have can be solved by medication and programs is just wrong. It's unbiblical. The Bible is saying there's a reality behind the scenes in our struggle. That sometimes the things that we struggle with are spiritual in their root. Sometimes the things that we struggle with are coming from a very real spirit enemy. And the, the reason why the awareness of this reality is, is so important is because it changes our perspective on how to struggle. Have you ever heard the, the saying, he, he brought a knife to a gunfight? Right? It's getting across the idea that you came woefully unprepared. You didn't come with the right equipment for the nature of the battle that you're in. Paul is telling us that we're primarily, we're primarily in a spiritual fight. And therefore, we need spiritual means. We need spiritual weapons to engage in that battle. So the first point is that there really is a spiritual enemy that, that's against God and is against us. The, the second part of the message that I want to cover is a question that I want to start to explore. And the question is, how do you identify the enemy? How do, you, how do you know when you're dealing with opposition instead of an obstacle? How do you know when you're dealing with opposition instead of an obstacle? Do you, do you know the difference? If I'm running to catch a bus across the street, and the light turns red, that, that's an obstacle. If I'm running across the street and Seahawk safety, Earl Thomas, comes and tackles me, that's opposition. Lights turn red and green. Things happen in life that you don't have to always attribute it as opposition. Sometimes it's just obstacles. Sometimes you are late for a meeting not because Satan slowed you down, but because you left too late. There's, there's sometimes just basic common sense. You don't have to describe or attribute everything to the enemy. So I think this is a really important question. How do you discern between when you're facing real opposition and something that's just an obstacle? First off, let me say that I'm, I'm, no, I'm no expert in this. Um, I don't have a, a deliverance ministry. I, I, I haven't studied spiritual warfare for years. Um, what, what triggered me to, to think about doing a series on this was, was actually um, just some struggles that, that Stephanie and I were experiencing as I transitioned from my previous career in, in technology consulting to full-time ministry I won't get into all the details, but Stephanie had two panic attacks. And, and that, and amongst other things, just it was a situation where I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? This, this was supposed to be a fun, happy time of transition to serve the Lord. And, and now there's all these struggles and issues. And, and, and it feels like, it feels scary. It feels confusing. It feels like, like I could step on a landmine at any point in time. 
And if we weren't careful that there could be division between Stephanie and I, between me and the church, like it, it heightened my awareness to ask the question, what's really going on? And in June, I met with a good friend who, who was talking about a similar thing with his family, and he, he had mentioned a book on spiritual warfare. And I, I went, and, I went and, uh, and grabbed that book and started reading it. And I thought, you know what? It'd be really helpful like, for me to understand what's going on. And, and I wonder if other people are going through similar things. And so I thought, you know, let's do a study on this. So I come to you as not an expert, as someone who is going through the scriptures that we all have access to, the word of God, and trying to understand what is God saying about spiritual warfare. Pastor John is the expert, and he's going to come next week and correct anything I get wrong. So, Once, you, once you've gotten past any issues in believing that there really is an enemy, once we understand that, okay, there is an enemy. He is against us. He is Satan. Okay, great. How do, what do I do with that? How do I know when I see him? Like, that's the question I'm trying to ask. And how do you know if you're being attacked? How do you know if you're being influenced by the enemy? Can, can Christians even be influenced or attacked by the enemy? That's a question. Can they, some people say, no, that just doesn't happen. Christians can't be attacked. Because you're in Christ, and you're victorious. So I want to look at um, at least one example. Uh, this is an interesting one from Matthew uh, chapter 16. And if you have a Bible, turn with me or, or navigate there in your app. Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to read uh, verses 13 through 23. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me 
because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. It's a really interesting story. Um, put together, you know, where Peter, by the revelation of God the Father, in, in a shining moment in Peter's life, says, you are the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And, and Jesus says, you are blessed, Peter, because of it. And just right there, right later, he, after called, knowing, correctly identifying that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and Jesus saying, no, don't tell everyone that because I don't want them to know that yet. Peter, correctly identifying Jesus as the Son of God, when Jesus says... I have come here to suffer and to die and to rise again. Peter, in his wisdom, says, Jesus, come here a second. Son of God, let me, let me, let me give you some wisdom here. It's not a good plan. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Peter's telling the Son of God that he's got a bad plan. Where is that coming from? Jesus says where it's coming from. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, how does Jesus identify? The, the question is, is Peter being influenced by the enemy? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Clearly, what Peter is saying is not in alignment with God's plan. That we know. That's not debatable. Jesus says, that's not my plan. I have my plan. I've said my plan. And if you were listening to my father, you would know my plan. But right now, is, is, Peter, is Peter an obstacle or is he opposition? He's opposition in that moment. Jesus saying, you're a hindrance to me because of what you're saying. It wasn't that Peter was foaming at the mouth. It wasn't that Peter was doing satanic rituals or levitating or doing anything like that. That's spooky. He's just the words of his mouth, what he was saying was directly contradicting what God had planned for Jesus. And Jesus says, that is of the enemy. Was Peter influenced by Satan? I think probably. Certainly what he was saying was satanic. I could go through other examples. Another one that came to my mind was um, Acts chapter 5. You get... Uh, two church members, Ananias and Sapphira, who, who, uh, who chose to lie to God by, by, by selling a piece of property and saying they sold it for X amount, but they kept back some of the proceeds. And then Peter says to them when, when they walk in, why has Satan filled your, your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Like these were church members, professed Christians for sure, who were filled with who Satan filled, who Satan influenced to lie to them. And, and we know the story. If you've heard it, they, they die like instantly. It's pretty, pretty kind of scary. And it says the, the church was filled with fear and awe at what happened. So, so these stories plus the, the exhortations that we get from Scripture uh, to be aware of Satan and, and his schemes uh, to resist him, strongly implied that it is possible for Satan, it is possible for demons to influence Christians. It is possible. And so, if it is possible, we need to be aware. 
And, and just a note, uh, I say demons and Satan. I don't have time to, to go into a deep sort of study on the origins of all that, other than to say that we do see in Scripture there are demons, there is a Satan, they are spiritual, and they are against God, okay? And there's other studies you could do, fallen angels and whatnot. That's, less, that's more debatable, but we, we, what we know is clear is there is this evil presence, and there's Satan and there's demons, okay? Now, if we can be attacked by the enemy, if we can be influenced by the enemy, how do we discern if it's the enemy? I think a, a first step, I would argue, to understand, uh, to answering that question is to understand the character of the enemy. And, and one verse that I found uh, really helpful is what Jesus says. He says uh, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44. And now he's talking to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's a pretty intense conversation if you read the whole of chapter 8. Okay, and, and it gets to the point where they, the scribes and the Pharisees, even accuse Jesus of having a demon just a little bit after this. So it's a, a fun reading time. So Jesus says, to the scribes, to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. That's a mean thing to say. That was intentional. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Now here's the character piece. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. The father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning, and he's the father of lies. And what we see in the picture of Scripture is that, that Satan very quickly reveals his character, and you can see that in the garden in Genesis. In Genesis, Satan was already against God and against people. He did not like, when, when, Jesus, when, when God said it was very good when he created Adam and Eve, like Satan says, this is very bad. And immediately he goes on the offensive, he goes on the attack. How does he attack? How does he start his attack? Do we have the, yeah, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made, he said to the serpent, or he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He, number one, it's not really, that's not what God said. Number two, he's trying to cause doubt in the mind of Eve at that case. But he follows that up as he's kind of, he kind of weaves his way. He says something very kind of close to what God said but not quite what God said. And then he tries to sow a seed of doubt, and then he follows that up with the bold-faced lie in verse 3, or verse 4. He says, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, not only will you not die, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. He's saying, God is, God is holding back on you. 
You're not going to die. God said you're going to You're not going to die. He's lying. Satan's calling God a liar. That's how liars work. They'll call you a liar. I'm the one telling the truth, not, not, not you. I... Satan is the father of lies. His number one technique is to lie. And in lying, he brings about death and destruction. So the first indicator to know if you're dealing with the enemy is to examine the lies you're being told. Examine the lies you're being told. Sometimes it's not easy to see the lies for yourself, and that's why it's so important if you're a believer in Jesus to be in community. Sometimes you're blind to your blind spots. That's why they call them blind spots. You need mirrors. Those mirrors are other people who can see where your blind spots are. They can see, you know what, brother, sister, I think you're believing a lie. So we, we need community. We're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. Examine the lies we're being told. I, I want to give you a few example lies that maybe some of you have heard, uh, maybe some that I've heard. Lie number one. It's perfectly okay and even beneficial to get a little drunk or tipsy. After all, you'll have more fun and be more social, which is a good thing. Lie number two. There's, there's nothing wrong with sexual fantasies. In fact, it's probably better that you act it out in your mind instead of in real life. Lie number three. It's okay to take some lunch money out of the register. They don't really pay you enough to afford lunch every day anyways. These are just three lies I thought of. You could probably think of a million of them. But notice that none of these lies are on the face of it, extremely gross. Right, these are, these, these seem like things that people could believe, or, or it's, it's not a big jump to get to a point where you could go, oh yeah, that's not that bad. They don't pay me that much. That's okay if I take 10 bucks to have some lunch. That's, they're not going to miss it. I mean, I've known people, uh, when I used to work at, um, I'm dating myself, Fun Force. Remember the amusement park? Seattle Center, and it's a cash business, right? You come in and you throw the, the dart to pop a balloon to win an animal, and you just keep this belt and you just put the cash in. And, and silly me, not silly me, but I just thought, oh, you just don't steal it, right? You just take the cash and you give it to the bosses and you go home and you, you get paid your six twenty five an hour. And, and what I found out was all my friends were taking lunch money, like a lot of them. And uh, like, one, one person went and bought me lunch. It's like, oh, wow, this is, this is nice of you. And they said, oh, this is on fun for us. I was like, oh. <laughs> How do you reason that? It's like, oh, well, they don't pay us any. Everyone does it. Right? Those little lies. And it's not gross on the surface of it. And, and it's, it's actually consistent with how the enemy attacks us. In, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, it says that the, the enemy comes disguised as an angel of light. And so do his servants. Like, the, Satan's not going to come with the big whammy sin and try to tempt us with that. He's going to come with the small little lie and follow that up with a bigger lie and then follow that up with a bigger lie after that. Right? He doesn't start with the big... He's not going to say, 
hey, Wayne, you should be an alcoholic and live on the streets and beg for money. He's not going to say, hey, Kim Nong, you should go rob that old lady at gunpoint so you can get money. Right? That, that's a bad technique. That's a bad strategy. No one's going to do that because for most of us, that's not tempting. Right? For some people, it is tempting because we know people do that. But he's going to start real innocently. He's going to start real small and then see if he can keep stringing you along. Look at the lies that you're being told. Now, now our flesh, our flesh by itself is powerful enough to tell us lies. So every lie we hear is not necessarily the devil, okay? But we also know that Satan and his demons are working behind the scenes to lie to us. And so sometimes we need to be aware that the lies we hear are demonic in origin. Lies, that's one way to help identify if we are facing opposition rather than an obstacle. The second is temptation. In addition to being told lies, you may be facing opposition when you face temptation. The, 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 probably the best example of this is when Jesus is tempted. Jesus is fasting for, for 40 days in the desert. And it says Jesus is tempting him all along, by the way. Sometimes people forget that. But after the end of the fast, perhaps when he's most vulnerable, Satan brings in the big guns. Wow, he's, he's pulling up his dart. He says, I'm going to get him. He says, you've been fasting for 40 days. What's the first thing on your mind? Food, right? You're hungry. Satan says, here's some bread. Turn this rock into bread. You can have it. You can eat. And, and I, don't, I won't get into every single temptation. He tempts him with bread. He tempts him with, with possessions. Like, you can have the whole world. He tempts him with this idea of self-empowerment. Throw yourself off the cliff and you will be protected. And it's the same few things, a handful, a handful of things that Satan will tempt us with. He'll tempt us with pleasure. He'll tempt us with power. He'll tempt us with possessions. There are other things, but you can usually boil down temptation to one of those three things. Temptation. And here, clearly, the tempter is Satan, right? Satan is directly tempting Jesus. And, and it's interesting, in that section, that's, that's from Luke uh, chapter 4, 1 through 13. It's also in the other Gospels. Um, Jesus fights off the temptation of Satan. And it, it doesn't say Satan's done forever. It says Satan waited until an opportune time came. So Satan wasn't done. He says, all right, you, you, you've done well now. I'm going to come back and I'm going to attempt again. So sometimes temptations are an indicator that we are facing spiritual opposition. Now, how do you know if it's uh, merely a natural temptation versus something supernatural? How do you discern the difference between just a natural temptation and a supernatural temptation? From one perspective, it probably doesn't matter that much. Because the way that we fight temptation will be the same whether it's natural or supernatural. And Pastor John will get into that next week. However, I would say this: there's one thing that's helpful. There's probably other things, but this is the one thing that pops in my mind. 
there's one reason why it's helpful to understand, at, at the very least, the possibility of supernatural temptations. It's this. Don't, don't assume that when something happens to you that seems beyond coincidence, that it's of the Lord. Don't assume that when something happens to you that seems beyond coincidence, it seems supernatural, that just because it's supernatural, it's of the Lord. I've had things happen on several occasions where I, I thought, this is really beyond coincidence. Like, this is not natural. It seems like it's supernatural. And I've assumed that it was the Lord, and it wasn't. And this can come in a lot of forms. It could be a random person from your past that re-enters your life at what you think might be the perfect timing. It could be a, a dream that you have that, that seems to answer a question that you've been mulling over for a long time and you all of a sudden get the answer. It's like, aha, that must be the Lord. Not necessarily. Years ago, when, when I was still unmarried, there was an attractive woman that I did not know messaged me on, uh, on uh, LinkedIn or because of LinkedIn. She saw that I was a pastor and she said, I want to talk to you. I said, oh, a beautiful woman who wants to talk to me because I'm a pastor. This must be the Lord. And it wasn't. <laughs> it was not the Lord, I found out later. And if I had been more aware that, that the enemy can use, by supernatural means, orchestrate temptations to try to get me away from God, if I was aware that the enemy could do that and didn't just assume that something that seemed supernatural or divine was God, maybe I would have been spared some pain. So don't assume that just because something seems supernatural that it is of God. It may be the enemy, especially if it's something that's tempting. And you'll find out very quickly, does it take you, does it bring you closer to God or does it take you away from God? And the answer will become quickly if you're, you will know it quickly if you're honest with yourself. Finally, the, so lies, temptations, the last one's death. Death. Uh, ultimately, as I'll say it plainly, Satan wants to kill you. I don't know how I could say it any more straightforward than that. Satan wants you and wants me, wants us to die, and he, he doesn't want us to be with God uh, eternally. That's why Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, seeking to gobble us up. That's what the enemy is seeking to do. So one of the marks of the enemy is a preoccupation with death, the glorification of death. I was uh, reading a little bit about, uh, who's, heard, who's heard of MS-13, the gang that's been in the news a little bit. MS-13 is a uh, street gang that is known for unusual cruelty. Um, they uh, often kill by dismembering using a machete, okay? And they've shown no discretion in who, who, they, who they'll kill. They'll kill babies, they'll kill women, they'll kill children, doesn't matter. And uh, MS-13 is something that's been talked about at the highest levels of office. Donald Trump, President Donald Trump has talked about it and getting rid of MS-13. Uh, it is uh, a gang that has unfortunately done a lot of damage 
in communities around the United States, especially on the East Coast and Northeast, but also in California and Los Angeles. So they're just known as a very brutal gang. And um, <clears throat> when you hear about that, you might think, and we hear about these stories, whether it's gangs or, or whether it's terrorists like blowing themselves up, we think, like, how could someone, how could a human being be so cruel? Like, what would cause someone to, to dismember a person, to kill a baby? What would cause someone to, to hijack a plane and fly it into a building filled with thousands of people? What would cause someone to do that? And, and, and I, I imagine we, we think that we have that thought and we go, oh, this world's just bad. This world's just bad. And we don't, I don't think much of it sometimes. I'm just like, oh, it's just a bad gang. It's just an extremely bad gang. And then I came across this article which shed some light. It's an article from the Washington Post that talks a little bit more about the origins of MS-13. Uh, it says, the quote that I'll read says this, Some of the gang's founders were devil-worshipping metalheads, according to experts. And although the connection has waned over the past 30 years, it can still be seen in MS-13's use of satanic nicknames, tattoos, and other imagery. The gang's devil horns hand sign is known as Lagara, a Spanish reference to Satan's claws. And some MS-13 members have told investigators that they committed their crimes at the behest of la bestia, or the beast. The beast wanted a soul, an MS-13 member nicknamed Diabolical said, after killing a 15-year-old girl who disrespected his satanic shrine, prosecutors told a Houston courtroom earlier this year. Now, this article was written um, in December of 2017. The, the death that was referenced was earlier that year. And people make a huge mistake when they ignore the influence of Satan in this world. This is not spooky, make-believe tales. This is not something that people were into hundreds or thousands of years ago. This is affecting our world today. Today, we see a lot of the, the death and the violence and the preoccupation with that is a direct result of the enemy's influence on the world today. And we do, we make a big mistake if we ignore it. We, do, we make a huge mistake if we ignore it. Now, of course, Satan would probably have a difficult time getting any, any of us to join the MS-13 gang. Like, I doubt any of us are probably going to uh, sign up or get beat in and initiated into this gang. But that doesn't mean that he won't still speak destructive lies to us. Think of those lies that we talked about earlier. They seem so small, but we can imagine that if you escalate those lies, they become destructive. That, that the person who's getting tipsy and, and just a little bit drunk every now and then uh, moves, from, moves to getting... Uh, completely drunk every now and then to, to getting drunk all the time to getting to the point where they can't feel normal anymore without having alcohol for breakfast. We've known at Harambe, unfortunately, several uh, homeless people in this community who have died of alcoholism, 
who we've known, we've seen coming here year after year, and they couldn't break free of that addiction, and eventually it took their life. Like these little, these little lies that we think, oh, it's not that big a deal. This sexual fantasy is not that big of a deal. Taking 10 bucks is not that big of a deal. They have a conclusion, and that conclusion is death. In every case, of every lie, of every sin, the conclusion of that is death. And that is the purpose of what the enemy is trying to do. He lies so that he can get you to die and, just, and, and be destroyed and walk away from God. He, when, when Satan started in the, in the garden and said, you will not die, he was lying. Because in their sin, that brought death into the world. They didn't literally physically die in that moment, but they died spiritually. It caused distance and gap in their relationship with God, and the process of death started. And, and now we see a world where we know the world is not as it ought to be. That's why there's MS-13. That's why there's terrorists. That's why there's cancer. That's why there's destruction and death. Because the enemy is attacking us. And we have to be aware that, that death is one of the indicators. So I would say, examine your self-talk. Examine your self-talk. If your self-talk is saying, I'm not worth anything, that, that I'm terrible, that, I, that maybe I shouldn't live anymore. If, you're, if your self-talk is saying that, that is not God. That is the enemy. That is not God. We know what God thinks by what he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. He's, and and one, one, one thing you can do is you can say that about yourself. For God so loved Caleb that he gave his only son that if I should believe in him, I will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved Ross that he gave his only son that if Ross believes in him, he will not perish, but have everlasting life. God says there is no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. So if your self-thoughts are condemnation, they are not God's thoughts. They are your flesh's thoughts, or they are the enemy's thoughts, but they are not God's thoughts. Lies, temptations, death, helps us to begin to see where there might be opposition from the enemy. We know there is an enemy, and we can see him operating through lies and temptations and death. The question then is, how do we engage with the enemy? How do we fight? How do we overcome? That's the cliffhanger. I want to leave us with just a few scriptures in anticipation of, of when Pastor John preaches on engagement. 
I want us to know that the enemy is a defeated foe already, like today. He's already defeated. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Past tense. On the cross... He defeated the enemy. He has no power. The power that the enemy had over us was our guilt, our shame, our our, our sin. And Jesus said, I've nailed that sin to the cross. There is nothing that the enemy has to accuse us anymore because Jesus paid for it all. We are not condemned because Jesus loved us that much. That's the good news. That's the weapon that we have. John will talk about it more next week. But I'll leave you, I'll close with this um, verse from 1 John uh, chapter 4. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you so much for your presence, for your initiating love, for your proactive pursuit of us even when we weren't looking for you. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to not be ignorant of the enemy's schemes Help us to be wise. Help us to seek wisdom in you and to, to, to seek your strength. I love how it says in um, Ephesians 6.10 that your uh, armor that's, that's supplied with your vast strength. So I pray that you would envelop us with your vast strength and help us Um, to be strong in you. Help us to cling to you. More than anything, help us to know and rest in your gospel, your good news. Help us to rest in the finished work that you did on the cross for our sins, to know that we are loved by you. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we are family. We thank you that we have a destiny of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
at this time also. Uh, every week we celebrate.